chapter 37, beginning in verse 1. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons, because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream. When he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered round it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Are, are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Let's pray together. Father, now, as we give attention to your word this morning and as we uh, seek to think together about these closing chapters in the book of Genesis, uh, we pray that you would guide and bless our time. Father, would we be uh, not merely hearers of the word, but those who seek to faithfully and to your glory do what we learn and what we read and what we hear as well. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. If we're not careful, thinking back over the life of Joseph can take on a kind of Aesop's fables feel. Here are the wise things that Joseph did. Do those. Here are the foolish things that we find in these chapters. Avoid those. Such an approach can end up with themes that sort of very quickly resemble a country or blues song. That's the way it goes. Life ain't fair and the world is mean. Or maybe you want something a bit more devout sounding. God is good. Beer is cold and people are crazy. Either one, if we're not careful, we can think, well, that's a good summation of what's going on in the life of Joseph. We must, however, though, remember the nature of the Bible. It's God's inspired revelation of himself. The triune God is both the author and the subject of this book. Now, we are going to learn things about ourselves. We are going to learn things about human beings. But primarily, the Bible is about God. And the God of the Bible is a God who saves. Let me say that again. Primarily, the Bible is about God. And the God of the Bible is a God who saves. So we know that Genesis... 37 to 55, must be pointing us in this direction. It must be speaking to us of this salvation. It must be telling us something about God's saving character and nature. And it must tell us of the one who will save. 
we should also remember that God is communicating this truth through stories. And we have an innate desire as human beings to place ourselves within any story, and this is no exception. But we must fight against our propensity to make ourselves the hero of the story. See, the moral of this is not you can be like Joseph. No, you can't. There are certain things that Joseph does that are reflective of being one of God's people, and you can and ought to do that. But friends, the time and place for Joseph is past. And understanding that Joseph ultimately points us to the Lord Jesus Christ, and by the way, we don't need another one of those, means, in that sense, that the canon is closed. We can learn from Joseph, but you cannot be Joseph. Now, in your bulletin this morning on page 5, you see an outline for our time together. You also see it on the screen in front of you. And the big idea then this morning is this. Genesis 37, and that should be to 50, not 55. Uh, that would be another book of the Bible. Uh, Genesis 37 to 50 teaches us lessons of godliness, reconciliation, and helps us identify the Messiah. It teaches us lessons of godliness, reconciliation, and it helps us identify the Messiah. So first, there are lessons of godliness. It's interesting, isn't it, that in the New Testament reading that Abby read for us this morning, uh, the writer of Hebrews is quick to point out that the faith of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, that faith was made manifest through particular actions. Or think about the words of the writer of, of, of James, in the book of James. Hey, you want to talk about your faith? I'm paraphrasing now. You want to talk about your faith? That's fine. But I'll show you my faith through my actions. And so the Bible is clear. The Bible gives us all the time examples and illustrations that help us sort through what the people of God are supposed to look like. We don't always look like this. But the Bible makes it clear that being called by the one true God of the scriptures means that we're going to live differently. We're going to speak differently. Our lives are going to look different. And that's certainly true as we make our way through these last chapters of the book of Genesis. As we move from uh, an emphasis and from an examination of certain individuals, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and now Joseph to thinking about, beginning in the book of Exodus, what it means to be God's people. So what are the lessons of godliness that we learn? Well, let's start with an obvious one. Let's start with a don't. And it's this. Favoritism within a family is lethal. Favoritism within a family is lethal. Did you note right away in Genesis chapter 37, verse 3? Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of any other of his sons. Uh, Moses goes on to give us a because, but at that point it doesn't really matter. It's lethal. In verse 4, but when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him. What had Joseph done? Nothing. He was born. And his brothers hated him. Now, we can go back and talk about all the ways in which uh, maybe we can understand and have some sympathy with 
Jacob's feelings. Yes, uh, Joseph is the, the son of his old age. Yes, Joseph is uh, the child that was born to Jacob through the wife that he really and truly loved. And she for a long time was barren. And so there's this entire process. There's this a great amount of drama that we have to go through to actually get Joseph here. And so in that sense, okay, we, we understand it. We understand the anxiety and the frustration. We understand the fear. We understand the prayers that were lifted up on behalf of his mother and father for Joseph to actually come into being. But friends, we see that favoritism within a family is absolutely lethal. Now, if you're a firstborn child, you know that you're not the favorite. We just live with it. If you're the baby, know that the firstborn children in the room hate you. Again, it's just the way it is. Learn to live with it. We used to joke in our family that we all thought uh, our other siblings were the favorite. And it's good. It's the way it should be. But right from the get-go, we understand that one of the things that's really broken and one of the things that's the most heartbreaking is that Joseph's brothers hate him for no other reason than because of what their father has done. We learn that God's people must also learn to trust him. We've seen, haven't we, as we've made our way through these chapters, that while Joseph is very much aware of the presence of God in his life, he has no idea about the purposes of God for his life. Most days, I think we would agree, we're there too. I understand God's presence in my life. I'm thankful for it. I'm glad to know that the Spirit of Christ indwells me. I'm glad to know that the Spirit of Christ uh, applies the finished and completed work of Jesus Christ in my life, and I'm thankful for the peace and assurance that God's Spirit brings me. But that doesn't mean that the Spirit tells me everything that God is doing in my life. And I don't like that. I want to know. I want to know partially because I want to control it. I want to know because I want to know. And I want to know fundamentally because I think God might sort of need my input on his plan. God, this is nice, but if you thought about this, I, th I think I've got a few ways to tweak this for you. No, friends, we must learn to trust God. We must learn from these last chapters of Genesis that the people of God are fundamentally identified by the trust and faith and confidence that they place in the God who saved them. We also learn that we must flee sin. In fact, right away in Genesis chapter 38, we have an example of folks who don't in both Judah and his sons. And then we have an example of Joseph doing exactly that in Genesis chapter 39 with Potiphar's wife. Now, too often, again, that's not our response. More often than not, we want to negotiate with our sin. We read this morning in Gentle and Lowly that we seem to forget that our hearts really do sort of love our sin. So that's why we want it to hang around. It's like the middle school girlfriend who broke up with us, but we still really kind of like her. No, what we learn in Genesis chapter 39 
is that you drop whatever it is that's going on and you get out of there. You flee. And too often, I'm afraid that what characterizes us is not a fleeing from sin, but a negotiation with sin or a sort of, I'm going to keep you at arm's distance, but I think I can manage you kind of approach to sin. We also learn in this that God's people should not expect a Hollywood ending. We learn that in Genesis chapter 39 and in Genesis chapter 40. What did Joseph do wrong? Nothing. I'll tell you what he did wrong. He was a good looking dude. That was his sin. Reminded of the words of a modern poet and philosopher, if being fine was a crime, then they should have locked your fine self up in a tower. That was Joseph's sin. He was handsome. We would expect then that when Joseph does the right thing, God's going to bless him. That when Joseph stands up in this dramatic and wonderful and life-affirming and and a righteousness-affirming way, that God is going to bless him for it. And yet we're told that after he flees and after he stands before Potiphar and doesn't say a thing, we're told in verse uh, 19 of Genesis chapter 39, 19 through the end of the chapter, we're told right away, Joseph's master took him and put him in the prison. What did Joseph do? Nothing. He was attractive. He was perhaps a bit naive. But we learn that we can't expect a Hollywood ending. It doesn't work that way. Just because you're doing the right things, just because you're pursuing godliness in your life, It doesn't mean that you're always going to get the ending that you think you're going to get. We also learn, and and this one I, I, I hesitated with and prayed about, but I think in the day, in the the cultural moment in which we find ourselves, it's important to remember this. Uh, We learn in these last chapters of Genesis, particularly in 38 and 39, that because the fall affects men and women alike, we learn that both men and women can misuse power and sexual intimacy. See, in the moment in which we find ourselves, we're we're told that no, uh, there's only one gender that's prone to misuse power and sexual intimacy because they're the ones that have all the power, and so that's what they do. But we learn in Genesis chapter 39 that no, both men and women are prone to this. Both men and women are prone to misuse whatever power they have. And we are so good at making a complete mess of sexual intimacy. It's not even funny. Both men and women are fallen. Both men and women are in need of God's redemptive work in their lives. Both men and women can misuse power and sexual intimacy. Now, I want to be clear about something. Uh, I I know sometimes we we have this great fear, at least in in our tradition, we have this great fear of, well, we don't want to preach synagogue sermons. We don't want to preach sermons that are do more and try harder. And I I understand that. I, I get that. But let's not forget that one of the things that Paul says to each and every church to whom he writes, Paul. 
the gospel, I mean, the preacher of the gospel, the guy who understands what it means to be in Jesus and grace, probably better than you and I ever will. Paul, to every church to which he writes, says something like this. Be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. Be an imitator of me as I imitate Christ. Friends, there are lessons that we need to learn from these last chapters in the book of Genesis. And there are lessons that will help us as we seek to pursue godliness. There are lessons that show us what it means for our faith to be reflected truly and accurately through our actions. And we need to pay attention to them. Secondly, we see a beautiful but subtle picture of reconciliation. We see a beautiful but subtle picture of reconciliation. One of the things that, again, immediately in Genesis chapter 37, uh, we're told, in fact, uh, Moses uses repetition in this, we're told more than once that Joseph's brothers hate him. In fact, three times in the first 11 verses, we're told to some extent or another how much Joseph's brothers hate him. And in verse 4, Moses adds to this, they could not speak peacefully to him. Now, if you have siblings, you know there's nothing quite like a sibling row or a sibling rivalry, and you know what it's like to not be able to speak peacefully to your sibling. Uh, But the the fact that this is basically the sort of, uh, this is uh, Joseph's everyday experience, and this is the dynamic within the household, I think you begin to see what a complete tragedy and what a, for lack of a better term, what a dumpster fire this whole thing is going to turn out. But then at the end of the book, we see something beautiful. And it's something that, if we're not careful, we're going to pass over it. I know this because I passed over it. In Genesis chapter 50, after their father has died, and the brothers come to him. In fact, I I love the way Moses puts it in Genesis chapter 50, verse 15. Please feel free to turn there if you want. In Genesis chapter 50, verse 15, we're told this. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead. Okay, dad's gone. Our brother is the number two guy in Egypt. He's the number two guy of the world's superpower. He could make us disappear and nobody would even know it. They said to themselves, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So what do they do? They lie. They sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave us this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive their transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgressions of your servants of the God of your father. Now what's interesting here is that we go from a relationship in which we cannot speak to one another to a relationship that's based on fear and a relationship that's based on worrying about how it is that Joseph is going to pay them back. To instead, we, we read this, uh, they, Joseph wept when they spoke to him. And then look at verse 21. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Friends, what a beautiful picture of reconciliation we have before us. 
What a beautiful picture of the reconciliation that is ours in the Lord Jesus Christ. That even though we have sinned against God, even though we have wronged Him, even though we are the ones who have rebelled against Him, and even though we continue to come Him with come to Him with cockamamie stories, in Christ, God speaks kindly to us. In Christ, God comforts us. In Christ, we are reconciled to God. And not only are we reconciled to God, but the Bible tells us we're also reconciled to one another. That we are a part of one body. We are under one head. The people of God are meant to be unified. Why? Because we have a common king. We are a part of a kingdom with a common king. It's interesting, isn't it? The Apostle Paul, again, in his letters, uh, when Paul really backs the truck up and just lets somebody have both barrels, it's generally for people within the church who are threatening the unity of the body of Christ. Did you notice that? Paul doesn't tell non-Christians to go and emasculate themselves. But the people within the church who through their false teaching, the church in Galatia, the people who are troubling the church with their kind of works righteousness, Paul comes to them and says, hey, you want to talk about that? Great. I wish that you would go emasculate yourself. You want to talk about circumcision? I'll, I'll raise your talk about circumcision. Friends, the the reconciliation that we have to God through the Lord Jesus Christ was bought at such a great price. And then we, as God's people, are to be unified. We are one body. We are under one Lord. And so we learn from Joseph just how sweet and beautiful and dear that reconciliation is. And from the rest of the Bible, we see that that kind of reconciliation isn't just between us and God, but rather it's, it's within the body of Christ. As we continue on in the Old Testament, it's going to be really interesting to see uh, these, these 12 tribes, these people who are they have, they have this common heritage, they have uh, this common ancestry, they all serve the same God, sort of. Um, what we're going to see as you go through the rest of the Old Testament is they are still horribly divided. I mean, in the book of Judges, you're just going, can, can we not? I mean, it's, it's sort of Rodney King. Can't we all just get along? And no, they can't. We see the beautiful but subtle picture of reconciliation, not only between God and man, but within the body of Christ. Thirdly, we learn that God works through his chosen servant to deliver his people. We learn that God works through his chosen servant to deliver his people. I would say this. That's probably the primary lesson that we need to walk away from these chapters with. That this is the pattern that God gives us to help us see the Lord Jesus Christ in this text. That in Genesis chapter 39, for example, as uh, Joseph stands before his employer, as he stands before Potiphar, 
and he hears the lies and the accusations hurled against him. The one thing that we don't read about in Genesis chapter 39 is we don't read about Joseph's response. We don't read Joseph saying, yeah, but. Joseph is silent. And as the sheep before his shears was silent, so was the suffering servant. What's the result? The result is that Joseph is sent to the pit, not because of his own sin, but for the sin of another. Joseph did not sin against Potiphar's wife. She sinned against him. And yet at the end of the day, which who's suffering the consequences for that sin? It's Joseph. Friends, in like manner, the Lord Jesus Christ suffered the pit. He suffered death and separation from God, not for his own sin, but for yours and for mine. You see, Genesis chapter 37 to 50 teaches us about Jesus. It prepares us for Jesus. If you've uh, been on a, a job search site, you know that their jobs will say, hey, you must have these qualifications and that you need to be able to do this and do this and do this and do this. And oh yeah, by the way, we're going to pay you much less than what you're probably worth. But we want you to be able to do all these things. Well, I wonder if we if we shouldn't, and, and this is, uh, all analogies are, are weak, so please understand that. But in some ways, uh, the Old Testament serves as a kind of um, must-have-these-skills-and-abilities if you're going to be the Messiah. If you really are going to be the Christ, you must be silent. If you really are going to be the Christ, you must be sent to the pit for another sin. And if you really are the Christ, then God the Father must raise you out of the pit to this position of power and prominence. Friends, Jesus, uh, we see the Lord Jesus Christ in Genesis 37 to 50. Finally then, and we'll go quickly. We have something Joseph did not. We have something Joseph did not. Again, uh, we've seen this. Joseph knows the presence of God in his life, but he's not certain of the purpose. And so even when we get to the end of the book, to Genesis chapter 50, and we read his wonderful words in verses 19 to 21, when Joseph understands, listen, I'm not God. Don't be afraid of me. I'm not God. And this is what God was doing. Verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Joseph is going, okay, listen, here it is. I understand the purpose of God in the midst of this. But what we know, because we have the rest of the Bible, is that Genesis chapter 50 doesn't get to all the purposes of God in Joseph's life. We need the rest of the book to do that. We need the rest of the book to help us understand that it's by faith that Joseph says, hey, I want you to take my bones out. When you leave this place, take my bones 
with you. We need the rest of the book to understand all the ways in which Joseph is preparing us for the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we, in that sense, have a word from the Lord that Joseph didn't have. And not in some kind of weird, um, sort of extra biblical way. But listen to Revelate, or excuse me, to Romans chapter 8. It's a passage we all know very well. But in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, we read this. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Joseph doesn't fully understand all the purposes of God for his life. Friends, we don't fully understand all the purposes of God for our life. But here's what we do have. We have this word from the Lord saying to you, saying to me, hey, whatever it is that's going on in your life, if you love God, those things are working together for your good. Same, but, but Pastor, you know, it's, you don't get, it's really painful. It's for your good. Pastor, it's really disconcerting. It's for your good. Pastor, it's taken everything I thought I knew about the world and it's turning it on its head. Yes, and it's for your good. I love if we, read on in this text how the Apostle Paul ties then God's purposes and the comfort that we have from knowing God's, God's plan and the comfort that we have knowing that God is working these things for our good. He goes on then in Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 32 to tie the providence of God to the passion of the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to verses 31 and 32. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Awesome. Love that. How do I know God is for me? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Friends, this morning as we come to the table, we see the providence of God tied to the passion of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are reminded that God did not spare his own son, but he gave him up. We are reminded that it is through the broken body and the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ that God speaks words of comfort to us. We are reminded that at the end of the day, all things work for good. Why? Because the Lord Jesus Christ has defeated sin and death and the grave. And we understand that just as certainly as Christ came the first time, He is coming Again, the purposes of God are tied to the passion of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why, friends, when we find ourselves suffering, we shouldn't go, well, I don't, I don't think this is right. Really? 
Christ suffered. When we find ourselves uh, at odds in the world in which we live, we shouldn't find ourselves going, well, yeah, I, I, I'm not sure what's going on here. Maybe I lack faith. No. The Lord Jesus was at odds with the world in which he lived. And he reminded us if he had trouble in the world, so should we. His providence and his passion are always tied together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the ways in which uh, your word points us to your son. And thank you for the words of comfort that the text speaks to us. Father, uh, in the midst of difficult circumstances, we pray that as your people, we would indeed uh, exhibit the kind of godliness that we see modeled for us in this text. We pray, Father, that we would look uh, not to our own circumstances, but we would look uh, to the passion of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that we would trust you when, it, when we, we're not absolutely clear about your purpose for our lives. And we thank you that given your spirit, we know your presence continually. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.